So we're going to be starting a new series today that will last us the next several weeks called Love Life, Finding It and Fixing It. And I'm actually adding a third F this morning, and that is fanning it. Let's consider for a second ways to find, fix, and fan love. And I've kind of condensed them into two overarching categories. One, I would call the postmodern way. Kind of like the clip you just saw from the Red Tails movie, if you've seen it. You got this cool, decorated, courageous, flashy pilot flying over after a battle mission, catching the eye of a person in Italy on top of the roof. They connect for a moment. And he goes back, the portions you didn't see, and describes to his fellow soldiers how he's in love. You know, And he believes in love at first sight because he's experienced it. And the emotions of that uh, drive him to spend a whole day and his day off to find the place where Sophia lives and knocks on her door and she comes to the door with her grandmother. And she's kind of shocked but enamored at the same time. And they start making googly eyes at each other. And then they start sitting. He sits down on the couch right next to her. And then it's kind of funny because Grandma kind of wedges herself right in between the two. And all of a sudden, uh, there's this relationship started. But here's the thing. She doesn't speak a stitch of English. And yet, in the very next date, they're telling each other that they love each other. And they're kissing each other. And I remember watching that, and I think I was thinking, like, you got to be kidding me. And then they get married. And they're in love. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, you know, we shouldn't show such clips like this in church. And I really beg your pardon if I offended anybody, I apologize. And yet at the same time, I warned you last week that today was going to be a little more of a PG kind of message because the world is constantly bombarding us with what love is. And we are easily succumbing to how culture defines love instead of really understanding what the Bible says about love. So this is the place we need to talk about it. And in our homes, continue the conversation, parents with their children, grandparents with their children, and friends with friends. So if this message causes any problems or creates uh, questions of some of the younger ones that come to you as parents and grandparents, just do this. Dial 1-800-PASTOR-JAKE, and he will be able to answer all your questions later this week. Yeah. <laughs> well, going back to the idea of what postmodern love looks like, we have to define what that is. I think the clip defines that pretty well. But specifically, as I define it, though it's a little of an elusive task, like they've said uh, in the- theological circles, like trying to nail jello to a wall. This is how I define postmodernism. It's it's the mindset of those who have no knowledge or consideration of God's standards. No consideration of what right is or what wrong is. And they just do whatever comes natural to them. Whatever culture says that they should do or whatever is politically correct. 
And here's the thing with and with the close of God's design for love shed. Inevitably, what happens, they feel their nakedness and they throw on whatever love as the world defines it to cover themselves, to find their need for love. And so what we're going to look at today is the alternative way to view it, the godly way to view it, the way that we really can truly find, fix, and fan a God kind of love. And that is a provident way. Providence is divine guidance and care. So provident living would be living under God's divine, divine guidance and care. And as we approach this passage in Ephesians 5 today, I want us to look at this passage to listen with our ears through the loudspeaker of God's love and through the lens of his magnificent love. Because God is not a, a selfish prude, a cosmic killjoy that just wants us to be miserable. In fact, he's the one that has designed love to function the way it is, to designed us with that need to be loved and to love. Well, where do we get that? Let's look at Ephesians 5.1. It says, therefore, be imitators of God. And what does your translation say? As what? Dear children, beloved children is something to that effect. Isn't that great that God starts off this kind of challenging message through Paul and the inspired word of God that he is penning at that moment in time with the context, you are loved. If you know Christ as your Savior, you are dearly loved child of God. If not, you can be today if you invite Him to be your Savior, to forgive your sin, and receive the gift of forgiveness and salvation. Well, here's some questions we'll consider throughout this series and dive into today. First of all, how do I know if I'm in love? Have you ever wondered that? I remember wondering that when I was dating Alona and I talked to a friend about it. How do I know if I'm still in love or how can I fix a love that's broken? For some of you that are married here today, you might have sensed the zing or pizzazz that has gone out of your marriage. Or maybe... There's just been one too many wounds and you wonder if you could ever be repaired. One too many promises made that weren't kept. One too many lies told. One too many betrayals you've experienced. There is hope. There is hope if we turn to God's providential ways of things. So we're going to talk about general prescriptions today for an F3 kind of love. Finding it, fixing it, and fanning it. And the first thing I'd like you to consider is that to find and fix and fan love, you got to look good, right? As the world would say, you got to have the wow factor. I call it kind of that Aichi Wawa principle, you know, Aichi Wawa. But we can't forget, look good like God. Did you notice in verse one where we read, therefore be imitators of God. We should try to possess spiritual bods for God, not just look good on the outside. Imitators is an interesting word, literally means to mimic God. And the word there, therefore, links us back 
really all the way to the beginning of chapter one, where it talks about our identity in Christ, that we're adopted, we're accepted, we belong, we're sealed with the spirit, we're secure in Christ, we're redeemed by the blood of the lamb, we're empowered by the spirit, we're given the capacity to be peacemakers in chapter two, and so on and so on. That's what love is. That's what God displays it towards us, and that's how we're to display it towards others. And then going on, here's a second principle. So first of all, look good like God, be imitators of him in all those ways that's defined in chapters one through three, but also in the ways that we just looked at towards the end of chapter four. As we consider that, consider this principle, especially for singles, but this relates to anyone desiring to attract godly relationships or friendships. Become like the person you want to attract. If you want a godly man or a godly woman as a single person, you've got to be one yourself. Many singles today work out regularly to try to keep their body in shape, toned and fixed to have the IG wow factor. But how much time, I'm asking the question, do you spend in training your spiritual body? To imitate, to mimic what God looks like and who he is. Remember the five circuits for Christ-like change we looked at the end of chapter 4? These are the spiritual regimens, singles, and those who desiring godly relationships need to be visiting often. To speak the truth, to manage their emotions well, to work hard, to share with those who have a need from some of the prophets of that work. To have lifting kind of speech instead of lowering speech. And then alternative attitudes instead of bitterness, anger, slander, controlling spirits. A spirit of forgiving, a spirit of compassion and care and tenderness like Christ displayed towards us. And really we should insert another square in this training regimen. We should put our love and sex life there. But it's not just by itself. It's linked to all the others. So 5, Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verse 1, rather, is really a continuing on of the thought. So I want to ask the question for you singles. How do you, how you are doing, rather, I guess it's more of a statement, how you are doing at mimicking God will determine what kind of person you attract. Internals affect externals. And the opposite is true as well. Externals also reflect internals. Let's get some practical thoughts and suggestions, shall we? What kind of clothes do you wear and why do you wear that? We'll address the ladies first and then we'll address the men. I've seen so many young ladies say they want to attract a godly man. And then they dress to accentuate parts of their body or to reveal parts of their body. And then they wonder when they start dating that person why that person wants to get physical all of a sudden. Guys are attracted By sight. 
And, and you got to be careful with that. And I don't understand this, but there's just some weird thoughts out there about this. I remember, I don't remember if it was a magazine my wife was reading or an infomercial we saw or something, but it was selling butt pads for $50. Accentuate your backside. And I thought, who in the world would want to pay $50 for something like that? Well, apparently there's guys that like big backsides or something. And that's the things we need to be aware of. And for, for men, you know, things are, have changed. It used to be in the gone with the wind days that it seemed like women were attracted to strong chins. And as I thought of it, maybe some strong stench too because, you know, the cowboys coming in off the plains for a whole week and they just lay one on them. And every time we see something like that, my wife says something like, man, that guy must stink. But you know, somewhere along the line, it's the same thing. Our culture has so perpetuated and warped what, what real love is that women, even though they're not necessarily stimulated by sight, are still stimulated by what guys wear. The tight skinny jeans and the, the shirts that show off the pecs and all those muscles and things like that. Now please understand, I, I, there should always be that Aichiwawa factor. Right? And we should look presentable. We should want to attract another godly person. But what about the places you frequent? Now, if you're ch- don't check out if you're not a single person because you need to be dialed in to be sharing this with your grandkids and other people in your sphere of influence. Where do you try to find the love of your life as a single person? This is something I just don't get. And I've seen it and I've heard it over and over and over again. A Christian young man and a Christian young woman praying and begging God to find Mr. or Mrs. Wright. And then they go to the bar to find them. That does not make sense to me. And it's like there's this mystical thought that as long as I'm praying about this, you know, God's going to show up in the middle of a bar with a a, a ray of light and there's going to be angels that say, oh, you found the person. (laughs) I don't understand that. And here's what happens. I'll give you a scenario, and I'm not thinking of anyone in mind. I've just kind of conjured up this in my mind. But boy meets man, boy meets girl in, in the bar. And let's say the girl is wanting to find that godly person. And so she starts to inject a little bit, you know, uh, what, what's your spiritual background? You know, I used to go to Juana. I used to memorize verses. And, and you know, I'm looking for someone who goes to church. And then boy says to girl, yeah, that's what I'm looking for, too. I used to go to one. I used to go to church. They'll say anything to get that person in bed later on that night. And it goes both ways. And then that happens. And the next morning, one of them jets. Or they move in together for a while and... The relationship crumbles. 
Or worse yet, one or both profane some kind of Christian belief system until they get married and then it's never mentioned again. Oh, man, that breaks my heart when I see that. And it all starts with how you dress and where you go to meet people and who you're trying to be as a person. My friends, this, this is what is true. This is what is right. This is what we need to understand. And again, remind yourself that this is through the, the lens of God's love. This is through the loudspeakers of how much He wants us to appreciate and experience the fullness of love that He came to give us. Thirdly, be the kind of person you want your spouse to be. And this is more for married people. In your notes, I've listed some scriptures, Matthew 7 and 1 Peter 3. So often when a marriage runs into tough times, a perspective one or both involved can be about all the things the other person is doing to contribute to the conflicts and problems they're having. So the battle begins and it turns into a war of how to get the other person to change. Is this sounding familiar? Many times that focus becomes so strong, deception and a delusion like we looked at in Ephesians 4.17 talks about, they became darkened in their understanding, their hearts became hard, and that happens in marriage because they're focusing on the other person while ignoring sometimes their own glaring faults that are contributing to the conflicts and arguments they're having. So let me ask you this, what if the focus for both became more about mimicking God than modifying the other person's behavior. What if each of them started a disciplined spiritual training, visiting each of those five circuits often? What if each one of them, instead of trying to change the other person, like Matthew 7 says, looked in their own heart to try to find the logs that are there and change those before they try to take the speck out of their spouse's eye. What if wives obeyed God's word in 1 Peter 3.1 to respect, to submit to their husbands and seek to win them over without a word? What if... Husbands, obey God's word in 1 Peter 3, 7. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Consideration. And what if you treated her as a co-equal, as a co-heir of Jesus Christ that she is? What if both of you in humility sought God's help to change what you need to change. I'll tell you what if. What happens. Inevitably 90% of the time as I've seen it. Maybe you have too. If each person can do that. The problems in their marriage solve themselves. It's amazing. So look good like God. Be imitators of God. And then. Secondly, another prescription, walk good. Get your swag on. You know, get, your, get your groove on. I've never seen anybody do it better than Jerry Singh in Trinidad as he jokes around kind of. But it's not 
to be showy. It's to walk in love and light. Look at verse 2. It says, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. And then drop down to verse 8. Where it says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. A walk of love, a walk of light. What does that look like? It's a giving of love. The word used in verse 2 is agape. I like how Chip Ingram defines this. He says this love is is giving the other person what they need the most when they deserve it the least. Giving what the other person needs the most when they deserve it the least. Doesn't that sound a lot like God's love for us? Verse 2, that Christ gave Himself up for us, the perfect spotless Lamb that was crucified among criminals. And the one realized the reality of who Christ was. And He said, you don't deserve to be here. We do. And Christ in His mercy looked to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. That is an unconditional God-like love that met that thief's greatest need, even though he deserved it the least. But he's done the same thing for you and for me. So God wants us to be extensions of that kind of love to others. Walking in love in this way is not just a ooey-gooey, fork kinds of feelings. It's a decision. It's a, it's a choice. In terms of dating relationships, what that decision and that choice does is to look out for the best interests of the other person. Let's consider Philippians 2, 3 through 4. And this is the command given right before it describes how Christ did that very thing for us in leaving the splendors and glories of heaven and coming to be obedient to the Father, even to the death on the cross. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This plays itself out in any kind of relationship from the playground where kids play together. Do you always, as kids, listen to me for a second. Do you always have to have your way of how a game is played? Or can you say, hey, let's do it your way. You know what that is? That's agape love. That's putting the interests of other kids on the playground higher than your own. And that's acting like God when you do that. In a dating relationship, that means respecting the other person's purity, realizing the fact that if you get involved physically, you're violating that person. And it could be more lust than love. And not only that, it erodes your friendship and your relationship together. And not only that, if you don't get married, guess what you're doing? You're stealing, you're defrauding from that person's future mate. 
And I guarantee you, if their parents found out about it, they'd be very upset. So you're sinning against them as well. For couples that are married, it means not going to bed angry, sacrificing things you enjoy, golf, hunting, shopping, time in the recliner, watching the game, if there's a need to be met. Being engaged when you're home with your wife, your husband, your kids. That's not easy, is it? As a matter of fact, a lot of times the last thing we feel like doing, choosing to love and serve others is more important than our own interests. But you know what's awesome? Is when you say no to self and you die to self and you take that first step and you sense God empowering you and you sense you the pleasure of God, the smile of God upon you, all of a sudden it's like, wow, Lord, thank you. Thank you for helping me to do this. Thank you for letting me experience what real love is like. We'll briefly discuss two other kinds of love because I think we have to in this context. One is a friendship kind of love. The Greek word for this is phileo. It refers to a kind of love that provides companionship where there's a sharing of all of life, not just sex. A sharing all of life that includes responsibilities that need to be fulfilled. Hobbies, games enjoyed together, conversation, and sometimes just enjoying sitting in the same room, saying nothing and appreciating each other's presence. This is essential to experience to find a fulfilling love. And then there's a third one. I'm calling it a need kind of love. The Greek word is eros. Can anyone think of an English word that might come from this Greek word? Hey, you said it. (laughs) Thank you. That was awesome because now I didn't have to say it. But you know what? I'm glad you said it because it's a great word. It's a word God designed. It's a gift for a man and wife in a committed marriage relationship to enjoy. It's a euphoric, intoxicating, exciting kind of love with all kinds of thrilling emotions. It's a kind of love that makes your heart skip a beat faster. The Aichiwawa factor. I still get that when my wife walks into the room. And then when she smiles, it beats a little faster even. God has made that kind of love. But the problem is this. It's abused by others and it's abused by the world. You see, I know some of you have experienced sexual abuse by a parent grandparent, a relative, a neighbor. And we're reading about it in the paper more and more. We're seeing it on TV more and more. This is becoming a chronic problem and challenge. And it's not just the actual physical abuse in these areas. It's also the mental, emotional abuse that takes place. And it takes several forms. One, I think, as I was talking with Alone about it even this morning, 
One is, I think that there's some homes that never talk about things like we're talking about today. I remember when I was 10 years old, this punk neighbor kid started spreading these rumors. I have no idea why, but it somehow got out there. I was sleeping with some girl. 10 years old, I didn't even think about that. I don't think then. And so my dad sits me down and we had the talk. That's the only time I can ever recall my mom or dad ever talking to me about such things. And then you had the converse side of things where a good friend of mine, a Christian, where his mom and dad were very, very open. And I think almost too open. One day I remember being over there and uh, my dad's or my friend's dad got down on his hands and knees and started crawling around like a dog after his, his wife. It was kind of funny, I thought, then. And, uh, and they were kind of grabbing at each other and things. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool, you know, pretty open about that until... Later, some of the kids started being promiscuous, and I started wondering, I wonder if they were too open about that. But then you also have, even if there is talk about it, sometimes it's something like this. Sex is dirty. It's something you just have to endure in marriage and the like that distorts something that God made beautiful. Not just to procreate, but to have a a man and wife enjoy. And I love, I think it's Linda, Linda Dillow, Intimate Issues. She describes having a sensual kind of love and that Christians often balk at that, but how she defines it as being alive to the senses. And, and that's the way God designed it for a committed couple in marriage. And not to view that as something dirty, but beautiful. Let's look on chapter 3, or chapter 5 rather, beginning in verse 3. Now, bear with me, it's going to list some pretty heavy-duty things here. It says, but for fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. So do you think if we shouldn't even be talking about these things that we should be doing them? (laughs) Verse 4, neither filthiness nor foolish talk, dirty jokes and the like, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Wow, those are pretty harsh words, aren't they? Do you think God cares about this? Let me share with you some pictures to give an idea what Paul was dealing with as he penned these words under the inspiration of God. To the left, you see the goddess Artemis or Diana. Artemis was Greek. Diana was Roman, named for her. As you can see in the statue in the front, all these egg sacs represented the fertility goddess. In association with worship of her, in the top you see the actual runes, some of the remnants of the temple that existed and a recreation of it below. It was one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. People would constantly flock into this temple to worship this goddess and combine with it heinous Sexual practices as part of their worship. 
Eros in Ephesus became an idol, a goddess. Nothing has changed today. Eros is still worshipped. And by many Christians. One of the words here is sexual immorality. It's a broad word. The Greek word is pornea, which refers to any kind of unlawful, physical, emotional, mental, illicit attitudes or actions. Anything that you can think of that would be outside of enjoying sex in a committed marriage. And then there's other words listed here. Fornication. Any kind of sex before marriage. Uncleanness or impurity carries the idea of any kind of sensual indulgence at the cost of another. Now I'm going to mention some things here. And the reason I'm doing it is because today Christians are thinking this. As long as I don't have intercourse, I'm good to go. Impurity and uncleanness refers to anything Any sensual indulgence at the cost of another, fondling, petting, oral sex, dressing in a way to arouse, get attention, attention, watching and reading things that arouse or stimulate. Verse 4 includes profane body language and expressions, sexual innuendos, dirty jokes, the like. Let me repeat it again. Do you think Eros is being worshipped today? Do you think Eros is a god, a goddess people are following today? So here's the consequence. It takes the gift of Eros that God gives to enjoy and exploits it and cheapens it. This is the way God meant it to be. Agape provides a foundation, unconditional love and service for the other. Phileo is built upon that, a friendship, companionship kind of love. And then to top it all off, God grants a beautiful gift, an eros love. But the problem has become our culture has inverted that. And most people start with eros. What happens when you do that? Take a look at this graphic The little point at the top of the triangle has been inverted upside down. What happens then when the feelings of eros start to wear off after a while in a relationship? What happens then when trials enter in to a relationship? What happens when you lose your job? When when someone in that relationship loses a family member and you go through that? Eros is not a part of that. And so what happens? They don't have phileo. They don't have agape. And so the relationship totally crumbles. My friends, we need to be getting this and practicing this because we're missing out on what real love really is. So here, the consequence is not only relationships crumble but also it's, it separates us from God. For this you know, no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man as an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Either they're an unbeliever and thus living that way, or perhaps they're a Christian 
And they are so far away from God, they don't even know it. They cannot be close to God. So if you're wondering in your relationship, if this part of your life is pure, ask yourself this, can you pray after? Can you read God's word after? If the answer is no, then I think you've crossed the line. The charge then goes on, Paul says, don't be deceived, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't fall into the world's pattern, the postmodern way of thinking that there is no right and wrong. There is no consequence for sin. There is. And then secondly, don't partake. Verse 7 says, therefore, don't be partakers with them. Don't even hang around them. Why are you at the bar? I don't think you're there to evangelize. If you are, call me. I'll come with you. I'll evangelize with you in the bar if that's really what you want to do. Verse 11, don't, but do expose it. Look at what it says. And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. My friends, if, you're being too, if you think I'm being too harsh, don't blame it on me, please. Blame it on God because he says expose this stuff. I don't think that's an argument you want to pick up with him. One more thing. Look good, walk good. And of course, you've got to smell good. There's nothing wrong with a little cologne or perfume, right? Of course not. As long as we have as our number one desire to be a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Look at the end of verse 2. Jesus himself offered himself and as a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Romans 12, 1, Paul said it in this way, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Pleasing to God, a sweet smelling savor, an offering that he is filled with joy to receive. So here's some application thoughts, singles and teens. Please listen and remember through the love lens of God's heart for you. Focus not on finding the right person, but being the right person. And focus not on falling in love, but walking in love and light. Then you will attract the right person that you are dreaming about. And focus on making God the love of your life rather than on making love. In time, if you do that, God will give you that special person. And it will be more wonderful than you can ever imagine. Commit to make your life fragrant aroma to God. God being your number one love pursuit. Spend time building the foundation of agape love and phileo love without the eros to begin. And if you're dating or if you have some, some parents or grandparents, concerned friends that are interested in this, on the back of your card this morning... If you want a list of some questions to know if you're really in love or just infatuated or maybe even lust, 
I'd be glad to give you a list of 12 things that you can think about that you can use as a teaching tool or conversation piece with others. Let me know on the back of the card and turn that in in the offering a few minutes. For couples, I'd like to encourage you to do this. Those of you who are married, go home. Ask your spouse which one of the three areas of love they feel they need most from you right now. An agape kind of love, a phileo kind of love, or eros kind of love. Ask the question with a willingness to listen and to probe, asking them specifics. Okay, so phileo, how would you like for me to display that in a way that would be meaningful to you? You listen. After you've heard, then you repeat back, this is what I'm understanding you to say. And if you've understood correctly, then follow through. Would you do that? You know, and one of the awesome things is, is sometimes uh, we're wondering, well, we don't, we're not getting this or that from our husband or wife. But then when we really listen and seek to serve them and speak their love language at the time, it's amazing how that your need is fulfilled just like that. And that reciprocal giving to one another just takes effect. And parents and grandparents and friends, please be talking about this to your kids, your grandkids, teens, young kids in this this audience this morning. Please stand for these truths and call your friends out on them and not in a derogatory way, but teach them what God has to say. They need to hear it from you. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We are so grateful in this day and age in which we live that you do not leave us out there hanging, trying to figure out what love really is, what it really looks like. You've so clearly defined it. And I just pray that we be obedient. And Lord, it's not easy by any means. We need your help. And so we beg you for it. And we ask your spirit to remind us of these things when we're tempted even later today, this week. In the weeks to come, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.